G'day, thanks for downloading the show. Osha here, really quick. You might hear an ad here. If you do, hey, thank you. You're helping me keep the lights on here at BTYHQ. If you don't, hey, you're going to hear Dr. Hannah Carell say something awesome. But hey, let's roll the dice and see what happens. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I hate that word people pleasing because I think it has a negative connotation to it. It suggests you're getting walked all over. It suggests that you give yourself too freely and it's something that you're doing wrong. And that was kind of my default mode. And I know now that a lot of that was from the way that I was raised and my core beliefs that were triggering in me that if I don't give everything to these people, then they're going to leave me and they're not going to love me and they're not going to be around anymore. But the real sad reality was that I was allowing people who were quite toxic to stay in my life, hoping that one day with acts of kindness, they were going to suddenly turn around and be like, oh my gosh, Hannah, we really value you and we really want to be around you and we, we want to care for you tenderly like you've done for us. But that didn't happen again and again and again. It didn't happen. And I sort of had this kind of realization that, you know what? Being afraid of having no friends is keeping me tied to toxic friends. That is author and neuropsychologist Dr. Hannah Carell, and this is episode 389 of Better Than Yesterday. G'day, welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is a bi-weekly podcast that hopes to help you make today better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show will hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. And I've been here since 2013. My name's Osha Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a bicycle rider. I'm a recent hip replacement surgery recovery guy. And um, I wrote a book once about me. <laughs> <laughs> what a narcissistic prick. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad you could be here. Thanks for the feedback on Friday's show about 
mood following action. I hope you managed to do something with that. I hope that might have resonated with you or perhaps, you know, knocked loose something that, you know, was relevant to you. I hope it worked out for you. If you need to get in touch with me, you can find me on Instagram, Osher Ginsberg with an underscore. I'm also send Osher email at gmail.com. Let me tell you about my guest today. I love having conversations about mental health and mental well-being, and this conversation is no different. Dr. Hannah Carell is a neuropsychologist. Uh, she's an author, and um, she's an expert in, I guess, basically why our brain makes us do the things we do. She basically brings the science of neurology and psychology together and has used this incredible training to look at the kinds of relationships that we otherwise never look at, which are friendship relationships. They're really important parts of our lives. They're not familial, they're not romantic, but they can have enormous influence and cause us great pain. She's written her first book. It's called How to Break Up with Friends. I certainly hope there's a, a better way than the, the ghosting technique that I've used in the past. But yeah, you can find that book wherever you need to find your books, How to Break Up with Friends by Hannah Carell. I hope you enjoy this chat. Well, how are you today, Hannah? I'm really well, Asha. Thanks so much for having me. Well, no, no worries at all. Where in the world do we find you today? I'm in Sydney, actually. I'm just up uh, over the bridge. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that place. You know, I, I, <laughs> no, that's a lie. I was at the zoo this morning, which is over your side of the bridge. So, oh, yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, Checking out the zoo. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of interesting, you know, because I don't want animals to be used as products and I don't want animals to be on my plate, yet I think it's important to see and connect with animals and be up close with a chimpanzee and go, holy shit, we aren't very far from that. And it's important to have that experience. Can everyone travel to Africa? Probably not. Can everyone travel to Dubbo, where the other zoo is? Probably not. <laughs> well, they say that less than a percent of our genome and our DNA strand is actually different to. Um, yeah. So yeah, we are we are genetically more similar yeah. to apes. Yeah, it's more. I guess it's more the the morals and ethics of the benefits of having large amounts of the public seeing animals that are incredibly endangered. Twenty thousand lions left in the wild. Horrible, mm. and. Here's a lion that should be roaming around in the plains eating gazelles. Mm. It's tricky. Yeah. So ethical quandary. What is the answer? Nobody knows. It is. <laughs> the answer is not a binary one. You know, I think that's we have been shoehorned a lot by the way that we are communicating now that so much of our communication is not face-to-face. -face. We are shoehorned into binary communication. There's only a like button. There's not a, I'm not 100% sure, but I see where you're going button or a, <laughs> Nah, man, I, that one little thing I agree with you, but the rest of it is bullshit button. There's not well, that. Well, now they have the happy button, the grumpy button, the sad button. So it's kind of like capturing the complexity and majesty of all the, the delicate replies that we could possibly give in like happy, sad, angry, right? There's, there's more than that. By the hab habitual nature of using these methods of communication, we are training ourselves to only speak in short communication bursts that, will have a, you know, either a, a big adulation of yeah or no. That's it. You know, there's no, uh, look, mm. it's really a 56-44 kind of situation here. You know, that's, that's hard. <laughs> but that's yeah, what the world, world is, though. The world is, is a spectrum of, of everything. 
Anyway, um, look, I'm really grateful. I'm really, really grateful to speak with you today. Your your book, How to Break Up with Friends, is a, a really interesting thing to talk about because you know, we all have relationships that went away. We may not know why that person doesn't talk to us anymore. Or we mm. all have relationships where we're like, yeah, I never, ever see that person again. And I'm better or worse for it. I was having a chat with Audrey last night as we lay in bed about, you know, there's definitely at least three people that I remember from my life that I'm, well, four now when I think about it, I'm quite regretful that I just let those vanish into the distance. You know, I didn't find a way to nicely end it with the possibility of maybe picking it back up again. It just went away. Yeah, it's not like family ties, not like a legal contract that we sign when yeah. we marry somebody. It's like the only non-blood relationship and non-legal relationship that we have. And it's really interesting what you said about sometimes they just disappear. And that tends to be the way it goes with friends. We plug along with them and it's everything's either okay or not very good. And then yeah. all of a sudden one of us decides we don't want to be in the relationship anymore. And then yeah. we develop a term called ghosting. Ah, oh, yes, exactly. You're uh, possibly astonishingly overqualified for this conversation, which is what I love. You have a master's in clinical neuropsychology and a PhD in neuroscience. So those things sound very, very complicated. I only know what psychology is and I only know what science is. So what's neuropsychology? Oh, I love that question. It's a great question. Well, it's the best job in the world, number one. Um, I don't know. I saw some pretty happy zookeepers today. (laughs) (laughs) They were having a pretty fucking good time loading up the giraffe food. Probably uh, take them on. Uh, so neuropsychology is the combination of how your brain is working, the neurotransmitters in your brain, the centers in your brain, the emotional regulation centers in your brain, the neurobiology that makes you the personality that you are, and the psychology, which is you know the soul, the human, the esoteric question of who am I and why am I reacting the way that I react based on my past experiences, my traumas, my life history that has contributed to who I am today. So neuropsychology would be like, okay, so you're like, if I think about my particular situations, like you're not producing enough serotonin. Because of that, it's giving you this experience of the world. You're reacting to the world in this particular way. And because of what's happened to you in your past, this is what that means to you. And now you are creating the situation. Like, is that kind of what it's about? Yeah, kind of. It's sort of, you can do neuropsych in a therapeutic fashion where we talk about the connection between what your brain is doing and why are these systems in your body, your sympathetic nervous system, your fight and flight mode, your your own unique brain functions, why are they contributing to what's going on in your life? And then the clinical side where I actually test the brain and I figure out which part of your beautiful brain, Osher, is working really well and which part of your brain might not be as effective as it possibly could be. Um, so I do a lot of do- diagnosis for things like autism and ADHD, dementia, traumatic brain injury, all that kind of stuff where we quantify what's going on in your brain with like pedagogy testing. So it's like IQ testing. Oh, wow. Have you been watching Dating on the Spectrum? Yeah, I love that show. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, we're all on a spectrum, aren't we? It's a spectrum. And, it is. you know, from a, a really life interfering range to a social quirky range, Mm. that's the clinical term I use, it's socially quirky, and then all the way into perhaps higher emotional intelligence and a little bit more woke when it comes to understanding yourself, Uh. the social interactions and other people's social interactions and why they're responding the way that they are. And we're all on that somewhere. I love it. When you were doing 
uh, your PhD, you specialised in the language centres of the brain, which I find really, really fascinating because I'm watching it now with as Wolfgang gets older and he's picking up two to three words a day right now, he's nearly two, and just seeing how, you know, on one hand it's because he has a word for it, now he's able to change the way he looks at the world and, B, I can't remember... Jimmy knows the quote the other day, like the moment you tell a child that a bird is a bird, it stops being a bird. Like it's not just a beautiful creature in the sky once it's got a label. And, you know, the the language that we use, how it shapes the world we experience, I find that really fascinating, particularly like when you find these extraordinary language groups that have no word for mine, as in not to Mm. dig out of the ground but possession. Like, oh, no, no, this is just stuff and we all use stuff and therefore their culture is – I find that sort of shit fascinating. But do you like – you put people in the fMRI machine and that sort of thing? For my research stuff, I used to do that. I don't do that so much anymore. That's lovely. That's uh, like all the medical professionals and they just give me the report. But for my end, an fMRI machine is a little bit like an X-ray machine. It shows you like the structure Mm. of – so if you had a broken arm, Osha, it would show you the structure of your bone and that your Mm. bone is broken. Whereas with your brain, it's a funny little organ, which means that it has a structure and it also has a function. Mm. The scanner can show you what the structure of your brain looks like, but it can't tell you what the function of your brain looks like. So when we put you in a scanner, it might show nothing. It might look totally fine, but you know that something's not right. And so that's when the neuroscience comes in and tests you in everyday life and sees what is your brain functionally doing and is there actually a problem that we're not detecting on the scanner. Because I have have been in one of those machines and I watched things flash in front of my eyes. They showed me pictures and things like that. And, yeah, (laughs) it was really interesting. Yeah, it was, it was kind of fun. I'm assuming you're in the middle of your academic career or just about to wrap up your, your, your PhD. That's all done. All finished. You were in this space when you noticed that your friends weren't around so much and they weren't there for you. What was happening in your life at the time? Yeah, that, oh gosh, you're straight into it. You're so good. So I suppose it was a tough time going through our 20s into our 30s, as you as you know, and anyone who's kind of crossed that line of hitting the this invisible line that we suddenly cross and we become 30 and we have these amazing epiphanies that happen when, you know, your digit go three, zero mm. instead of two, nine. Going to bed at 10 is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 10? I'm in bed at nine. <laughs> <laughs> Something about those milestone birthdays seem mm. to cause us to take stock. And I think for me, I had gone through 12 years at uni and significant moves and traveling around Australia as part of being a registrar and, and relationship breakdowns, like total relationship breakdowns and periods in my life where, where we have all been there, Osha, where you're, for me, it was laying on the floor in front of the heater with my head on a pillow, just lying there going, what am I doing with my life? totally alone in the middle of um, Ballarat, freezing cold and just being like, I just feel so terribly, terribly alone. And it was an interesting moment because my life had been a lot of people pleasing, I suppose you can say. And I actually hate that word people pleasing because I think it has a negative connotation to it. It Mm -hmm. suggests you're getting walked all over. It suggests that you give yourself too freely and it's something that you're doing wrong that you have to have better boundaries and you need to be more assertive, which is true, but also it's a beautiful thing to be somebody who gives and your default mode is I want to help you, let me help you, let me take the shirt off my back, let me take the shirt off my mum's back 
to kind of help you. And that was kind of my default mode. And I know now that a lot of that was from the way that I was raised and my core beliefs that were triggering in me that if I don't give everything to these people, then they're going to leave me and they're not going to love me and they're not going to be around anymore. Mm. But the real sad reality was that I was allowing people who were quite toxic to stay in my life, hoping that one day with acts of kindness, they were going to suddenly turn around and be like, oh my gosh, Hannah, we really value you and we really want to be around you and we um, we want to care for you tenderly like you've done for us. But that didn't happen again and again and again. It didn't happen. And I sort of had this kind of realization that, you know what, being afraid of having no friends is keeping me tied to toxic friends and there's no space left over to make any other relationships that would actually treat me with the same reciprocal kindness that I was giving. What's toxic friendship look like? <laughs> so I'm a scientist, so I like to boil things down to a formula. And as you said before, nothing is a dichotomy and nothing is ever black and white, but I try to make it as black as white as I could for us to understand these things. I think there's a few fundamentals with friendship that they have to be there. Otherwise it's not a friendship. So for me, I think there's an umbrella under which there's some essential qualities. So the umbrella is reciprocity. You need to have a reciprocal relationship with someone in order to have a relationship with that person. It can't be all give and no take. And I think people get scared with that term because they think that friendship means giving and giving and giving and expecting nothing in return. I find people really resist me when I say, well, you should expect something from your friend in return. They, they think that's selfish and they think that's rude and they think that that's not in the true spirit of friendship to give and expect something. But the things that you should expect in return are pretty simple. You should expect a friend that you can trust. You should expect a friend that supports you. You should expect a friend that's affectionate around you and uh, doesn't act like a wet mop and make you feel like they don't like you when they're with you. And you should expect a friend who actually respects you as a person and doesn't feel like you're beneath them in some way, that they're smarter than you, they're more affluent than you, that they're more successful than you, that their opinion is worth more than your opinion. And if trust, affection, respect, respect and support, if any of those elements are missing, then that's going to insidiously eat away at the friendship and cause feelings like I'm worthless I'm being rejected, I'm being excluded, I'm being treated toxically and unfairly and hurt you. And in the long term, the science is pretty clear, that actually has a significant impact on your health, your physical and mental health for the rest of your life to the point that it can actually increase the likelihood that you die sooner and that you get dementia. It's crazy. And this is for friendship. This is specific to friendship. I think we can all appreciate Exactly what you're saying. We all know that we have had a friendship that has been like that. When I met Audrey, she had met some people that I knew and was like, why is that person in your life? Do you not see that? And as you'd mentioned, I hadn't really assessed the situation or hadn't really figured out what was going on. We see heaps of movies about the thing is you see romantic relationships in popular culture all the time because the stakes are quite high. I'm either mm. going to be in love with someone or I'm going to be lonely, all right? Yet friendship is, I guess they're easier thing, easier relationships to get into. They're very important relationships to get into, but if we don't get into them and they go away, then we're still lonely and the loneliness is, is the same. Do you think there's unrealistic depictions of friendship in popular culture? 
Oh man, I think societal norms, we call them norms, which are the frameworks upon which we view our society. I think that we are really wedded to some unhealthy expectations about the individual, especially in Western society, this idea that as an individual, you only have some worth if you are popular, if you are wealthy, if you have a partner and this really entrenched fear that we have of being alone, being alone with your own thoughts, being alone with your own emotions and this relationship that we have with our emotions. Cause you have a relationship with your emotions. If you picture your emotions in your own body for a second, most of the time when I talk, tell people to picture your emotions in your body, they imagine like maybe a black or a gray part of themselves, which represents their anger, their fear, their crippling anxiety, that feeling in the middle of the night or in the evening when you're sitting on the couch and you feel like you're falling apart and like you're totally alone. And they hate that part of themselves. They hate it. And their relationship with their feelings is that I hate you and I want you to disappear. But in actual fact, those feelings were never there to hurt you. They're there because they love you. They're there because they will never, ever give up on you. They will always mark and flag to you when something is wrong in your life to protect you. And they won't stop for a second of a minute. They will not stop because they love you so much that they will not allow you to settle for the life that you don't deserve. And what people kind of grow to feel like is inappropriate is being sad, being anxious, sitting with those feelings and talking with them listening to them, telling, asking them, what is it that you need to tell me about what's going on in my life that's not okay? And that involves being alone. That involves sitting with yourself. That involves talking with yourself, being your own best friend, as cliched as that sounds. It's a cliche for a reason because you need to know what's going on in your heart. You need to listen to your gut instinct about what's right for you, what's wrong for you, and what's in your best interest for the long term. And if you can't sit alone with yourself and be okay with being alone, then there is a serious, serious problem because we cannot ever base our happiness on things we can't control. And you cannot control another person. You will never be able to control another person. We can control ourselves though. We can control ourselves. And yeah. I, I, I concur, it's important to sit alone and, and listen to those feelings of sad and listen to those feelings of anger and listen to those feelings of hurt or, or whatever. Where does my role in the relationship come into? Where does the time to question, and I always have to ask it, am I the asshole here? Am I the one, not, not in a self-flagellating way and not in a, I'm, you know, I'm the victim. It's like, a, what's my part? Where does that come into it? Yeah. I mean, we can't all float away on a fluffy cloud of like self-love all the time. We do have to be realistic and say, if there is a feeling that something's wrong, that is indicating that either there's a problem with the friendship party or there's a problem with you, that some, some part of this is not working and some part of this is not okay. So I suppose that's a great question. And not a lot of interviewers ask me about What was my role in this? Did I contribute to this? And I think the thing that people find kind of hard when they read things like my book, How to Break Up with Friends, is a big part of it is talking about and communicating to the friend what happened and what upset you and what it was that they did that was inappropriate and being able to say, 
when you called me an idiot in front of our friends, it hurt my feelings. Please don't do that again. When you canceled last minute on me, it meant that it wasted my afternoon and I wasn't able to do anything else. Please don't do that to me again. When you look at me in that way, when you speak to me in that way, it hurts me. Please don't do that to me. And a lot of people really struggle with talking out what's wrong and saying, when you did X, it hurt me. Please don't do X again because there's this fear that it's confrontation. And if I say what's upsetting me, I'm going to detonate some, you know, three, two, one, kaboom, confrontation bomb. And mm-hmm. it's going to be so awkward and so awful. And they're going to react by spitting the dummy or they're going to gaslight me and say how it's all my fault. But you, you need to give yourself and that person the benefit of the doubt that you can have a healthy adult conversation where all you're doing is saying in a calm voice with integrity, Osha, with integrity, mm-hmm. when you did X, it made me feel why yeah. please don't do it again. And it's okay for us to have those conversations, but a lot of people don't. I appreciate that. And is there a place before you go to the, the breaking up part, is there yeah. a place of assessing your own behavior and having a long, hard look at yourself and go, all right, that's right. I did get drunk and try to, you know, win onto their partner. Right. Okay. Of course they're not texting me back <laughs> rather than, <laughs> oh, they're just being a bastard. They don't want to text me back. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And, and that self-check that self-reality check. You know, we have the thing called interventions and friend interventions where somebody will sit us down if we're lucky and Mm. tell us, hey, you're a little out of control. What you're doing is self-sabotaging and you are alienating yourself from other people. You are pushing us away. You are self-sabotaging this relationship. Um, And it's very easy to fall into victim mentality mode where we are in this unrelenting crisis. Everyone's doing something wrong to me and it's not my fault. And we keep performing the same pattern of behavior, whether it's because we reduce our inhibitions through drinking too much, or whether it's because we overcommit ourselves when we don't have the time or the resources to honor those commitments and we let people down, whether it's because we are not realizing that we're being passive aggressive in the way that we talk to that person or patronizing. And this goes both ways. That person might be doing it to you, you might be doing it to them, but a big part of a big part in the book is self-reflection. You know, what is it about you that is causing this issue to continue? What is it about the way you value yourself that allows you to one, continue to be exposed to toxic people and two, not value yourself highly enough that in all your dealings and in all your relationships, you honor that you deserve some integrity, you deserve to act with integrity and you deserve to receive integrity from the people that you're with. Because you do, you do deserve that. When we are in a romantic relationship, the term red flag refers to things that many people would be able to identify quite quickly. It's not often talked about red flags in friendship relationships, right? Mm. I would love it if you could talk to me about what you spoke about toxic and, you know, either gaslighting you or calling your names in front of other people. That's an unhealthy relationship as is the opposite, as is someone who adores you, as is someone who waits on your hand and foot, as is someone who is at your beck and call, as is someone who unknowingly has put you in a position of power over them, 
and you may not realise that you're taking advantage of that situation. That That's also something that's dangerous for both of you because that's a really weird boundary situation. How can we spot if something like that is going on? Yeah, the unhealthy martyr syndrome where people love to be the saviour or they love to be the hero on the high horse who swoops in and saves us or, they, or they're the giver, the over-giver. And when we're in a dark place and we're in a hard place, it's really easy to take advantage of that because we need it and we like it and it's helpful. And we know that, you know, they probably shouldn't be driving past and hanging out with us this evening because it's not really healthy for them and they need to go home and do their own stuff or no, I shouldn't be taking money from that person again because they can't really afford it, but I really need it. Or they're giving me a lot of emotional support over the phone, but they've actually got a wife and a kid who they need to attend to as well. And they don't really have the time or the energy for this. And this is costing them to do it. And I know that, and yet I'm continuing to do it. We need to respect each other enough to know there's two parties here. There's a party that is overgiving that people pleasing mentality where they're being triggered because they don't want to lose you or that's how they interact with people. They give and they give and they give and they give too much. They give too much and they have an issue with boundaries. They have an issue with boundaries. Often we see this when we break up with someone and we try to be friends with them <laughs> and then they, that person might give way too much to a relationship like a friend wouldn't normally do those types of things, but they're doing it because they secretly love you and want to get back with you and you let them do it, but you shouldn't do it. We've all been there. So there's you allowing them to realize that they're doing that and them actually setting the boundary and not doing that. And sometimes you need to be the one that sets the boundary. You need to be the one that says, this isn't actually healthy for you. You know, you talking to me about your issues with your marriage, this is beyond my scope now. And you need to go and talk to a a therapist about this or talk to your wife about this, or you are giving me too much of your emotional energy and time. I'm going to stop calling you in the middle of the night and you. I need you to stop taking my calls in the middle of the night because you're enabling me to do that. We both need to work together to do this because I'm sucking you dry and I don't want to ruin this friendship. But it feels so nice when they're always the first person to comment on my Instagram post and when I catch up with the coffee, they they ask me about, you've been to Bali, haven't you? You went to that water temple, right? And like that's a photo from my Instagram from two years ago, uh, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a love friend, right? Osher, and then there's the, the martyr friend who's giving too much. And yeah. I think it's great if you have a friend that adores you. That's affection. That's the affection part of the pillars of friendship. That's the trust part and the support part. The problem yeah. is the respect part. The problem is respect because they are putting you on a pedestal and they're giving way too much. So they're o- almost overly respecting you. They're putting yeah. you in this like parental position almost and their their admiration and, and their behavior towards you is too much. It's actually not appropriate, yeah. but you're letting them do that. Before I was on, before I was sober, oh, sorry, after I got sober, one of my best friends in the world, I went to go and stay with him and his family. He was um in the Northern Rivers, uh, lived by the beach. And I spent a couple of days with him and his family. And he said to me, like on the second day, he goes, it's really easy to be around you now. I said, what do you mean? He goes, mate, when I used to hang out with you, I would sometimes need a day to just, you know, decompress. It was too intense. It was too much. Mm. And that was a really a massive part, massive, massive moment in my life because it meant that A, the sobriety and the mental health was getting better and B, I had no concept that I was having such an effect on this person. How can we check ourselves that we're not being the one that is being the the friend that's pushing the boundaries or crossing the boundaries. How can we be sure we're not being the one who's too much, who makes our friend gasp for air or who needs a, he needed a debrief with his girlfriend often for hours after we hung out with? 
We've emotionally other. exhausted them. Yeah, yeah. How can we check if we're not doing that, if we're not being that person? I love that you mentioned, you know, the sobriety and the, the drinking because that's such a, a real and vulnerable part of this. And a big part of it is, well, who are you? Who are you? What is your level of integrity? What is your level of behavior when you are you? Because you aren't you when you're inebriated. You aren't you when your disinhibitions have disappeared, when your filters have disappeared, when your impulsivity is through the roof, when your limbic system that controls your emotions has shut down and your frontal lobes have become blocked because those receptors in your brain have just cease because you put an alcohol block between them and you're not thinking with your wise mind, you're thinking with your alcohol brain. And the things that you did in those moments might've been really cutting and really hurtful. And maybe you don't even remember. Maybe you don't even remember what you did or what you said. I guarantee you I don't. My hippocampus checked out for about a decade. <laughs> yeah, we don't lay found, we don't lay memories down when we're when we're drunk, which is why you can have blackouts and not remember yeah. whole periods. Yeah. Alcohol's a huge one. And I guess, you know, I, I feel like we could be here forever if we discuss the individual behavior that constitutes toxic friendship. You know, you and I could sit here for two years listing, oh, and then they do that. And when they do this and when they do that, that's bad. That's bad. That's bad. But I think the best signpost is always going with the feel, going with the feel. That's a pretty good red flag is if you're walking into an interaction during an interaction, after an interaction, if you feel like something's wrong, like you feel guilt ridden because of the behavior, you feel ashamed in some way, you feel icky and dirty. You know, that feeling Mm -hmm. in your gut where you're like, Oh, something's wrong. And that's when you usually call them to get reassurance that was I okay last night. You know, that, that icky feeling that you get the next day where you're like, did I behave as my best self or was I behaving out of control? Was I out of control? Going with the feel is, is a really good red flag for there being a problem. So if you're walking away from that interaction and you don't feel like you behaved with integrity, then that is a clear message from the universe. This is wrong and you need to think about this actively. Don't passively go through this feeling, let it wear off and do it all again next weekend. And then just to talk about the other side of things, when you catch up with a mate, you're supposed to feel better afterwards, right? What happens if we don't feel better after we see a friend? Is that a sign? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. That's the, I mean, it's both, it goes both ways. Like you walk away from the interaction feeling worse than before you went into it, feeling emotionally exhausted with less money in your pocket, with less time up your sleeve, oh, yeah. with less energy than what you had before. The much needed energy that you might've required for your job, for yourself, for your sleep, for your child, for your partner, whatever it is. If you're walking away from that interaction feeling worse than before you went into it rather than replenished, rather than loved, rather than supported, rather than refueled, that is also a sign that the balance is out of whack because someone's taken more than they're given and you're the one who's giving it to them. Right. It's kind of interesting in this country we have this weird myth, this this lore, L-O-R-E, of the mates. You never let your mates down. Where do you stand on this idea of mateship and mates for life and no matter what, if a mate asks you, you got to 
you know, this is particularly a male thing because I'm kind of interested in this because I feel certainly when I grew up, I'm one of four boys and I went to an all-boys school and I did get stuck in a few of these relationships because of these rules that I thought I was supposed to follow that mates are forever and chicks are for whenever and other kind of fucking bullshit that I, no, I swear to God, it rhymed so I thought it was true. I was 17. And what would you say to men who are listening about, this idea that no matter what, you're always there for a mate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, friendship changes over the course of your life. It's scientifically known. We go through things called didactic withdrawals, and that refers to the shift in your energy as different stages of your life come through. So when you're at uni and you're at the uni pub and you're having daiquiris at the bar, it's a very different person. Yes, strawberry daiquiris, yep, yep. Uh, and then when you're in your first job, versus when you're starting your own business, versus when you get married, versus when you have a child, versus when you're caring for your elderly parents, versus when you become an older person yourself and go into retirement. Your energy shifts where you have to invest your energy changes. If anyone's listening who's raised a kid before, you probably know the first two years, it's basically you, mum, and the kid as you survive that period. So it's totally normal for friendships to ebb and flow over time. It's totally normal for you to develop different friendships as your social circles change based on your life. So this idea that we give a friend a hall pass to be a friend for the rest of our lives, no matter what they do, well, that's kind of toxic friendship in the making because you're allowing that person to know whatever they do, they're always going to be a friend. And in actual fact, that's selling you very short and it's selling them short because they can do better than that. And it's very normal. For, your brain can actually only handle five, we call it the Dunbar number. The Dunbar number is how many very, very close relationships can your brain handle at any one time. Your brain can only handle five super close relationships at any one time. I'm talking about people you see every single day. I'm talking about your partner, your child, maybe your sibling, maybe a parent. And maybe if you have space, a really close best friend who you might talk with every day or every second day. And then as the closeness gets less complex and you get less close, you can handle more people at that level. And people shift between those levels up and down, up and down over the course of your life, depending on what stage you're in. So when you're 18, maybe four of those spaces were taken up by best friends. And maybe when you're 32, it's all family members and maybe one close friend. So it's perfectly normal for us to have a few very good quality friends rather than oodles of mediocre ones. Mm. And the second thing I'll say is masculinity. <laughs> like It's such a complex quandary. And there's a great book called Boys in Crisis, which is all about how gentlemen are going through a mental health pandemic, which we don't really talk about. 75% of suicides in Australia are men. Yeah. yeah. Eight people die by suicide every day in Australia. Six of them are men. Um, but there's between one and 200 attempts in Australia every day, which is yeah. fucking horrible. And you know, those stats have actually increased. So the last time the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, did this research, it was more like 60-40. So we actually know that this has been increasing over time and it's getting worse. And a lot of researchers have gone, well, why? Why is this happening to our men? And they think it's something to do with a sense of loneliness and lack of belonging. So when you're in a relationship with mates and you're all sitting at the pub, and you're surrounded by guys with the footy on and the beers in hand or at the golf club, you're physically in close proximity, which means I, I literally mean you're sitting beside each other. 
But without the dialogue, without the discussion, you are not emotionally close. You are not emotionally intimate. And researchers, the Journal of Men's Studies, are saying that male friendships are based on physical proximity and not emotional intimacy. So there's no discussion. There's no true discussion going on in those friendship groups or very little unless you happen to be friends with a a more progressive male because we have these issues with banter. A lot of men do the, the teasing and the bullying. And as soon as anyone discusses anything emotional, anything that's too emotional, they get shut down and they get teased. And one of the largest studies that's been done on male relationships by Beyond Blue in 2014 has really clearly shown that a lot of males are actually really unhappy with the quality of their friendships. So 45% of them were saying they weren't happy with the number of friends they had. 37% said they weren't satisfied with the quality of those friendships. 30% of men were willing to say that they did not feel like they could open up to their mates. Because if they did, they would get teased or bullied or told to harden up, told to be a man. I don't like the term toxic masculinity because I think it implies that all masculinity is inherently bad. It's not. It's not bad to be masculine. It's a spectrum. Everything's a spectrum. You can have too much of something and too much of something is always a bad thing. You can be too stoic. You cannot do help-seeking behavior enough. You can be emotionally reserved too much so and you don't seek out any true sense of emotional intimacy and you end up feeling very very alone I think what we're dealing with is a masculinity imbalance which is this idea that to be a strong man big men don't cry that's the saying right big men don't cry strong men don't show emotions and if they show emotions that's feminine and that's weak and I don't want to be associated with that And the other side of that is, well, you have emotions. You are a person who lives and breathes and feels and might feel desperately, desperately lonely in your bones to the point that you can't do this anymore and you don't want to do this anymore and you have no one to tell. And then horrible things happen. And that's not okay. And we should be talking about that a lot more. Men need a friendship revolution. Yeah, how can we help the men in our lives. Now it's it's no secret that as men get older and there's you know often quite a focus on career and then a focus on family their close friendships kind of disappear and they do tend to focus quite inwardly on uh, on their family and you know that can put undue burden upon their wife or husband and kids even but what could you say about the importance of balancing your partner's relationship with you and the family and when they're not at work to be focused on the family at home on the weekends and spending time away from the family with their friends and what that does for them and what it does for the relationship back in the house. Yeah. Well, firstly, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. Literature, science is showing us that healthy quality relationships, not heaps and heaps of friends, a few really good quality friends has been shown to reduce the risk of chronic illness. So if you have a lack of friends, meaningful true friends, that is associated with the health effects on par with obesity, on par with smoking, it can shorten your lifespan. And the reverse of that is when you spend quality time with a friend, and this is, they actually tested this against family and work colleagues, and this is specific to friends, it has a restorative quality to it. It, it, There's systems in our body called our sympathetic nervous system, our parasympathetic nervous system. And when we're with peers, 
people who are like-minded, people who are the same age, people who we share values with, we share hobbies with, that has a restorative quality to the very cell replication that occurs deep down in your, your cells and your body replicates these cells that make you a healthier being, that make you more successful in life, that make you more intelligent in life, that make you more affluent in life, that make that increase your academic success in life. So if I had to sell it, I would say it's going to improve your life to spend quality time with good quality people. But then the next part of that equation is, well, you have to insert a good quality friend into yeah. that equation in order to achieve those benefits. So if you're a dude hanging with your chums at the pub and they're giving you, they're heaping crap on you because you've decided to be a vegan or you have just broken up with your partner and nobody is asking you how you're doing and you don't feel like you can t- bring it up because you're going to make people feel uncomfortable. That's a pretty good sign that, you know, you're lacking that rich quality relationship with at least one male friend that you can then open up to. And I think the literature was also kind of indicating things like men seem to be playing this game of chicken, like who's going to open up first. Mm. And a lot of 67% of men felt like other men would be uncomfortable with talking about emotional, their emotions. They wanted to talk about it, but they felt the other person would be uncomfortable. So it's almost like if someone can just go first, the other person will more than likely be like, oh, yes, finally, let's talk about this. So somebody's got to be brave enough to take the first step. Somebody's got to be brave enough to have the real conversation. I would suggest at first, if you're not sure, don't do it in a big group of rowdy boys at the Bucks night. Meet up with a guy for coffee. Have one-on-one chat with that person. Yeah and test the waters. And if they're repeatedly showing you that they're not interested in talking about your emotions or your divorce or how hard it's been being a parent or the workplace issues that you're going through and your terror that you're going to lose your livelihood, if you can't talk to them about that again and again and again, well, hello, that's a sign that maybe that person isn't that good quality friend that you were looking for and you might need to invest in a new one. I consider myself incredibly lucky in that I've been part of a regular Wednesday night poker game that's happened since 2004. And I think there's about 14 of us all up. There's only ever eight or 10 at the table though. And we have been there for each other through first marriages, divorces, (laughs) weddings, second marriages, babies, you know, jobs coming, going, unemployment, GFCs, you name it. And, you know, in between the the dick jokes and and the teasing, there's enough trust in that group of men that if someone goes, yeah, man, it's like, it's, it's really hard. People will open up and you're right. As long as someone opens up, we, we trust each other enough that we're able to speak about that. I consider myself incredibly lucky to have that with this group of guys. Um, but I know not, not everybody has that. But then, you know, when I think about this group of guys and often friendships do happen in groups and whether they groups that spin out of mother's groups or groups that spin out of a workplace group or a social team or a football team or something like that, Friendships form in in groups sometimes, and sometimes there's a person in that group that is detrimental to everyone's well-being. How do you approach a toxic friendship situation in a group situation? Yeah. The principles of behavior modification, Osha, which is great for any parent listening, is reliability and consistency. So yeah, sometimes there will be somebody in the group who's just always that guy. And I think that is where you need to come as a collective front to the individual. So I don't know what the particular behavior is. If maybe they're 
quite negative. Maybe they shut people down. Maybe they exclude people. Maybe they're overly pessimistic and their language is sucking the energy from the room. And that's just a perpetual issue. It's it's not a case of we're just not listening to them when they have issues. It's just this ongoing, unrelenting crisis and there's never a reprieve. And it's very energy draining to be around them. There needs to be some kind of social rule in the group, which is as a collective, we're going to take turns or we're going to have a time limit on what we're saying, what we're doing. And once that's done, we need to move on and we need to change the air. We need to change the energy in the space. And if somebody's not honoring that, that that can really just like inject this horrible energy into the space that makes it uncomfortable for everybody. I would say consistency means that everybody in the room needs to respond the same way reliably, which means that you need to say kind of the same phrases. So like, oh yeah, mate, you know, we've talked about that. We're going to change the topic to something else now and bring the mood up. Oh yeah, mate, you know, we, we did, you mentioned it again. And I, like, like I said before, we're going to change the topic and bring the mood up. Yeah, mate, you've, you've already mentioned that. And as we said, this is probably not the space to discuss it and we can discuss it another time because another big part of it is honoring the space. When I do therapy work, for example, we have individual one-on-one settings and we have group settings and the rules of the group are that some topics are too big. Some topics to truly honor the gravity of those issues, they need to be discussed in a different space, one-on-one where they give, where an hour is dedicated to that topic not amongst 10 guys where it's peppered throughout like a 30 second conversations about it again and again and again, yeah. that's not appropriate to the setting. So I, you know, I was talking to a parenting group the other day. It's okay for you to have rules and enga- of engagement with your friendship group. Hmm. And if it's really bad, you might as a group need to all sit down and go, you know, I've noticed that the vibes changed here and we maybe let's do some new approaches to how we're going to get together and change the way we chat and actually have a conversation about, Let's set up some boundaries here to make this a more healthy space for all of us. And I know probably a lot of people are rolling their eyes like group rules as if we'd ever do that. Sometimes you need to. Mm-hmm. I Oh, no, I agree. Keep the porn out of the group chat. We often read it in front of our kids. Uh, that's a good rule. We have that one. When it is one-on-one though, and I guess more to the you know the, the title of the book, which is a, is a cracker, when it is one-on-one, why do you feel it's important to actually have a breakup conversation with a friend versus, okay, that's a blocked number. Okay, never seeing them again. Okay, I'm wearing headphones every time at the shops in case they call my name, I'll just not hear them. Like, why is it important to actually verbalize the why the relationship is ending versus just ghosting? Yeah, I, I really dislike ghosting. I think ghosting doesn't do you justice. It's so easy. It's so easy and it's not confrontational and I get to do it. It's so easy. (laughs) I mean, it's what we always do, isn't it? We don't go to, we don't go to friendship counseling. There's no such thing as friend counseling. There's couples therapy that there's no, and there's family therapy and there's even workplace mediation, but there's no friend counseling, unfortunately. Maybe that's something we'll get into down, down the track, Osha, you and me, what's that a business? (laughs) (laughs) The friendship counselors. But um, unfortunately, it's, it's the new trend because, as I said before, you're not legally bound to these people. It's not a workplace relationship. It's not, so it's not a professional. There's no professional bridges there. And it's also you're not bound to them biologically. They're not a family member. So there's no obligation to manage the ties, to manage those bridges instead of burning them. 
ghosting doesn't really do you your justice. You are a person of integrity. You are a person who upholds respect. You are a person who gives a lot. So if you haven't given the appropriate chances for this friendship and communicated X behavior was wrong, don't do X again, you've done X again, and now things are going to change. Are you really honoring and respecting yourself there? One day, it's a small world. One day, you'll probably walk down the street and you might see that person again. You might see them again through your social media. You don't know when your paths are going to cross with this individual again. And nobody wakes up in the morning, Osha, going, whose life am I going to ruin today? People don't do things maliciously. People act the best way they can with the resources that they have on that day. And maybe the time you knew them, that was all they had in the tank and they were going through some stuff. And maybe one day when you're both older, your paths might come back together again. And maybe it'll be a a beautiful rekindling of a friendship because you both learned a lot. But it's very hard to do that if you have just completely dropped out of a person's life and not given them the kindness and the decency and not given yourself the kindness and the decency to have any communication with that individual about any of what's happened. So I love the word integrity. I love the word integrity. I think whatever you do and whatever comes out of your mouth, we should always have a filter to check. Am I doing this with integrity? Is ghosting this person and not taking their calls and not accepting their attempts to contact me to reconcile or to ask what happened? Is that with integrity? And if you can't say that it is, then maybe you need to reconsider what you're doing. It is though, you mentioned that, you know, it's not a business relationship. It's not an intimate relationship. We don't share custody of anything. So there are, the stakes are low in many ways for just vanishing on the person. Yet to have integrity, you're saying that in the end, you're doing yourself an injustice and them an injustice if you don't you're denying both of you a chance to move and and grow from this opportunity, from this situation by not voicing it, which I understand, but it's understandable as well. Like, does that mean because the stakes aren't there, it's very easy, I guess, for the other person to go, oh, no, 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 but I really want to, you know, I, I still want us to be friends. I still want us to hang out. It's very easy for us to go, yeah, cool, man. We'll see what happens. It's very much like, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll call you. That's, you know, yeah, I'll call you. Like, you won't it's the really hard thing to put the, the the lock in the door and turn it and throw the key away to go, actually, no. Why is it important to do that? Why is it important to go, you know what, you've got some stuff to figure out and I don't want to be around when you do? Like, why is it important to have that full stop? Well, I guess the question is, do you put your mental health first? Do you put your own oxygen mask on first or do you put everybody else's on? And I ask this question a lot do you put your mental health first? Mm-hmm. And full stop, do you put your mental health first? Mm. And to get through life, trust me, I've worked on many a ward. I work on a geriatric psychiatric ward, which is where we have people in their 80s and their 90s who have spent a lifetime harboring the effects of never having put their mental health first in any fashion, yeah, always second to everyone tough. else. That's tough, man. I cannot stress enough that a lifetime of exposure to people who are toxic to you confuses your brain on a neurological level. We have a vagus nerve in our brain, a polyvagal nerve, which fires alerts when somebody who is supposed to be being kind to us, someone we're supposed to trust, a parent, a friend, a family member, 
when the person we are put in a position of trust is hurting us and your brain turns on a system called the sympathetic nervous system, which floods your body with adrenaline, cortisol, all types of hormones that stress you out, suppress your digestion, don't let you sleep, give you migraines, give you food intolerances, and a lifetime of building up this huge, huge amount of stress in your body, being in this chronic adrenaline mode because the exposure to this emotionally unhealthy person is hurting you, hurting you. There's a part of your brain, if you look at your own head and you kind of go, if you went down the center above your eyebrow and then in, it's called a cingulate gyrus, anterior cingulate gyrus. That part of your brain lights up when you experience pain. So if somebody was to kick you in the shin, that part of your brain would light up. If you get emotionally abused, emotionally excluded, heartbroken, if you have an emotional pain, the same part of your brain lights up. Your brain cannot tell the difference between a physical pain and an emotional pain. They are the same. And in society, we see someone with a broken arm and we don't tell them to snap out of it but we see people with depression and anxiety and we think that they can just snap out of it because we don't value emotional pain like we do physical pain. We don't see it and we don't recognize it for what it is. So the question is, do you put your mental health first? Do you appreciate the long-term ramifications of your soul, your heart, your emotions Mm. for the rest of your life? The trajectory of the rest of your life is dictated by the priority you set with your mental health. Just a moment here to uh, basically tell you a little bit more about another podcast I do and maybe play an ad. We'll get back to Hannah Carell in just a sec. If you haven't checked out Idle Australians yet, it's a new podcast I'm doing with James Matheson. We did a podcast last week all about the Mabo trial in Australia. Very, very important trial as far as Indigenous uh, First Nations people are concerned with uh, Dr. Brian Keon Cohen, who's the barrister that won the trial, spent 10 years working on it. And um, amazing, amazing chat. Find it wherever you find your podcasts, IDLE Australians. Here's a little taste. Would you give 10 years of your life to something? It's an extraordinary story. Who who would do that? I remember you telling me once, and it it really reframed things for me, man. You said, you're going to have to let go of this idea that some problems can be solved within your lifetime. I think my whole career, nay, my whole life has really just been that scene from Wallace and Gromit where as the train is hurtling down the track, I'm frantically putting the pieces of train track <laughs> in front of the engine. Is there, is there another way? Is there any other way? Idle Australians with James Matheson and me. It's out every Thursday and you can find it where you find your podcasts. Now, we're either going to go back to Dr. Hannah Carell or we're going to have an ad here. Let's see what happens. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Can you give me some examples? I just kind of fascinated. It's like I've broken up with people before. I've been broken up with before. But I don't think I've ever had a friendship break up before. What does it sound like? What does it sound like on the other end of the phone? Or what, is it, what does it sound like when you're speaking to someone and, and actually ending it? What are the words? Like, I know that it's not you, it's me. Like, that's the classic. It's not you, it's me. Good luck. I wish you all the best. I'm sorry it didn't work out. This is not the right time for this. You're a really great person, but I don't want to yeah. pursue this anymore. Good luck. I'll see you on Bumble. Like, how does it, we understand those in romantic words. What, what's it sound like in a friendship space? How does the conversation sound in a friendship space? In the book, we actually, I do things like provide templates and stuff of things you can actually say because it is hard and it is scary. And in the, in the moment, we can't think of what we want to say. So, I mean, I'll tell you what it doesn't sound like. It doesn't sound like I'm five cocktails down and Sandra has just told me how hideous my dress is. It ain't a heat of the moment thing. We are not doing this in the heat of the moment. So it doesn't sound like that. It has a precursory warning. It has an indicator of the behavior that was warned that was inappropriate months before it has happened where we, we say to ourselves, have I told them what was wrong? And have I told them what I, what I need them to stop doing or start doing to make it better? It, it has a precursory warning. Because then if they keep doing it, then we can say, I've told you not to do this and you keep doing it. A really good go-to sentence that I love at the start of any any conversation, whether it's in person or whether you've done it through a letter or, or a message is, you know, I'm no longer in a place where I can continue to give this the energy and the time it requires. And I need to now put my mental health first so I can no longer give you that time and energy as I have in the past. So I need to put my mental health first now. And it doesn't sound like airing all your dirty laundry and going through, well, you did this and they did that and you said this and Mm. you said that. It's not a conversation of back and forths where, well, I did this and you did this. That's a precursory conversation. It's not a breakup Mm. conversation. A breakup conversation isn't actually a conversation. It's a message. I'm here to tell you this thing. And whether you're up for discussing the reasons why, you choose that. Mm. You might choose that at that time, You don't want to go through and you're not ready and you're not able to have the emotional energy to go through all the reasons again for that person. And you can say, I'll think about it in the future. And if I feel like my mental health is in a space that I can talk to about this, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. And then maybe in two weeks, a month, three months, you can have a conversation about what happened. But the idea is you've laid the groundwork long before the breakup actually happens. You mentioned before, like, it's more frightening to stop being friends with someone than it is to stay being friends with someone who's not very good for our mental health because we fear being alone. Yet that kind of relies on this fallacy that we'll never make another friend again, which is completely irrational. As you get older, as, you know, we may be settled into our careers and we don't shift around workplaces as much, how do you make new friends as an adult? If you're not in a mother's group, you know, or, you know, you're not playing poker, how do you make new friends? How do you find those people? Yeah. So many people are like, oh, you can't make new friends as an adult. And I always say to them, 
well, what have you actually tried? What have you actually tried? What assertive attempts, what active attempts have you actually tried to make new friends? We are in 2021, Osha. This is an amazing time, an amazing time where we actually have apps and services dedicated to forming new friendships. And the beautiful thing about that is if you use something like Meetup or Bumble Friends, where you're meeting someone specifically for the purposes of, hey, let's see if we can be new friends, that person's probably also coming to the party wanting to make a new good quality friend too because they've probably been through similar stuff to you. And it's really interesting. The literature tells us, you know, 50% of people, one in two, one in two people feel lonely and they would like to make a new friend. Every second person you see out there also wants to make a new friend. The whole universe is lining it up for you tapping at your door saying, we're here, we're here. We want to make friends with you. Just give us the opportunity. So for some, like for myself, I went and joined a salsa group and now I teach salsa at that place. I have a beautiful community of friends. And what that involved was me doing something that I loved, taking my energy, my time, my money out of a toxic place and reinvesting it in myself, in my own hobbies. And then I met people who had similar hobbies to me. So what are you interested in? Maybe it's watercolor. Maybe it's learning Italian. Maybe it's learning to bachata. I don't know. You go find, you can see you're interested in the bachata. (laughs) You find that avenue. You find that ability to go and take that money and invest it in yourself and that time and invest it in yourself. And what you'll find is you become exposed to other social influences. You see them on the regular and friendships develop as a secondary consequence of that beautiful choice that you have made to invest in yourself. Yeah, it's going to be okay, basically. It's going to be okay. My favourite new saying is, you will always find your way. Yeah. Because you're here right now, and so you found your way here. Through everything you went through, you will always find your way because you'll never let yourself down. So you will always find your way. It's very true. It's very, very true. Hannah, it's been super duper good to talk to you. Thanks heaps. Congrats on getting the book out. I've written one. They're fucking hard. It's hard to get them up. It's hard to get them sold. (laughs) But it's important because once they get out, then it's out of your brain and then it's out into the world and people do with it what they will and it can end up doing things that you thought it could never do and that's certainly been the case in my situation and I hope it's the same with you. The book's called How to Break Up with Friends. Hannah, thanks heaps for being on the show. I really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you also for what you're doing. Um, You know, as a psychologist in this community, the ability to listen to a male influence who is so carefully articulated, thought through, and is discussing some of the most vulnerable topics in our society right now is so very important. So from everybody, thank you for having (laughs) this amazing podcast and tune in, guys. It's very sweet of you. Thank you very much. I just, I, I want us to to normalize these conversations as normal as we have a conversation about, oh, I got a flat tower and I had to pull off the side of the road to fix it. Oh, that's a bummer. Made you late. Yeah, it made me late. Look at me, I'm covered in filth. You're covered in filth, covered in filth. Now I've got to go see a guy to get another tower. Bummer, I know, but there's, at least my car will be safe. You know, I want conversations about mental health and taking care of your mental health to be about the same. You know, yeah, it's a bummer and we can empathize that it's a bummer, but there's help and we can be fine. If we do some, you know, bit of work, we get our knees in the dirt for a little bit, we'll be okay. And that's all I want to do because I know I didn't have that and I just, you can't be what you can't see, Hannah. And the more normal it is, the easier it is. Anyway, um, thanks heaps. Have a cracking day. I really appreciate your time. 
<laughs> Thanks, Sasha. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Hannah Carell. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. I hope you made you think about perhaps your friendship relationships, how you may have ended some in the past. Certainly made me think about, and with great regret, actually, some relationships that I didn't end well. There's a couple of guys that I, I really, really miss that I let those relationships just kind of vanish and disappear. I'm really sad about that. And I think it might be a bit too late because so much stuff has happened since the last time I spoke to those dudes. But, you know, we went through a lot together and it, it does make me sad. You know, I was thinking about when I was speaking to Hannah. It makes me sad that I no longer have those people in my lives because my life was, my life is what it is because I'm, I knew these people. And I'm kind of bummed that I haven't seen them or talked to them in a long time. But I get a chance to do something about that now, don't I? I get to make sure the relationships I have now are good for me, good for the other person and give benefit to both of us. And I'm really grateful to have Hannah on the show to speak about the importance of friendship relationships in our lives and how to make sure they stay positive for everyone involved. You can buy her book, How to Break Up with Friends, wherever you get your books. And um, thanks heaps for being a part of the show. Thank you to Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, Andy Marr, my audio producer, Toe Hyder, who made all the music, Bree Steele on the research, and you for listening. Without you, there is no show. So thanks so much. If you need me, Send Osher email at gmail.com until I speak to you on Thursday with me and Jimmy or Friday back here. Sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.